In 404 AD, there was a monk named Telemachus. And Telemachus was visiting Rome for the first time. And as you can imagine, he was incredibly excited. You see, he did not live in a day and age where he could just whip out his cell phone and Google image what Rome would look like or virtually take himself there. So could you imagine what this must have felt like to have gone to this giant metropolitan city for the first time and seeing all of these beautiful buildings and thousands and thousands of people. So as he was enjoying the city, as he was walking around for the first time, he saw hundreds if not thousands of people start to form a line and head into this building. Looking outside of the building, he was greeted with what looked like an oval structure and columns that continued to layer and have levels and levels and levels. And of course, what he was looking at was the beautiful Roman Colosseum that we can show you an image of today. Just out of curiosity, have any of you ever had the opportunity to visit the Roman Colosseum before? Any, anybody here? I have not. My wife has, but I hope hopefully one day I'll get to do this. And if you didn't know, the Roman Colosseum sat thousands of people. I mean, if you think about it, it's incredible that it could seat so many people. And in fact, it sat around 60 to 80,000 people. I mean, those are incredible numbers, even for our day and age. But if you think about the kinds of equipment that they had in order to pull this off, was incredible. So as he went into the Colosseum and found his seat, not knowing what to expect, he eventually saw two men walk out into the the arena. And while they were in the arena, they began to fight each other. And what soon what was once excitement now turned into dread. As he saw these two men fighting each other violently. So Talamunchus, not knowing what to do, immediately just springs into action trying to do something. And he makes his way down to the arena floor, hops over and goes out in between both of the gladiators with his hands spread out. And he says, in the name of Christ, stop. In the name of Christ, stop. Because you see, Talamunchus' beliefs were that people should not kill each other. That in doing that, you are marring the image of God and that there is no need for that kind of a violence, especially violence for the sake of sport. So Talamonchus is putting his hands out and asking everybody to stop, stop what you're doing in the name of Christ, stop. And of course, the arena lasers in to Talamonchus and looks at him and begins to hurl insults at him and throwing what they have on them. They start chucking it at Talamonchus. And tradition would have us know that in that moment, a gladiator went up to Talamonchus and cut him down. He died that day. However, the Roman emperor who was alive during that time, <clears throat> touched by Telemonchus' faith and touched by Telemonchus' desire for people to pursue peace, outlawed the gladiatorial games 
and through his death brought peace, at least within the arena of the Roman Colosseum, where there would no longer be men killing each other as a way of sport. Isn't it amazing what compassion can do? That compassion has the power to convict people and change the course of history. You see, I think compassion is something that each and every single one of us in this room desires. Compassion is what gives us the strength to face blatant evil, to stand up and fight for the goodness of God. It is what stirs our hearts when we see a broken family, a fatherless child, a homeless man or woman, an abused spouse or a hurting person. In many ways, compassion is what brought each of us here today. Because each of us recognizes deep down inside our need for compassion. In particular, the compassion of Christ. That we live in a world that is broken and fallen. And because of that, I think each and every single one of us desires Jesus' compassion to meet us. In our need. Because so often this world betrays our desires and what we hope to see. Well today I would like to share with you one of the greatest stories of compassion that Jesus shares with the listeners during his time. And that comes from the book of Luke. So if you have your Bibles with you today, I encourage you to open up to Luke chapter 10. And as a good pastor, I should probably bring my Bible up as well. (laughs) So we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. And we're going to specifically be looking at the story of the Good Samaritan in verses 25. So I encourage you to open up there. Now, I know that you guys are used to seeing the Bible on the screen, and I think that's wonderful that we do that. But I want to encourage you that if you don't bring your Bibles to church, to consider doing that, just because it's good to get in the habit, I think, of familiarizing yourself with God's Word and allowing its pages to become familiar with yourself. So I always encourage and remind people that, I yes, I know we have our Bibles on our phones and on the screen, but get used to holding and understanding God's Word. I think, I think it's special to do that. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 25. And this passage, I like this passage a lot because the beginning of this whole entire narrative is pretty unique. And it begins off with an individual coming up to the person of Jesus. Scripture says in verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the lost stood up to do what? To test Jesus. To test Jesus. Now, don't forget that, that he's, this individual is both an expert and he's trying to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, take a moment to think about that, that question of what must I do to inherit eternal life. In some ways, I think he's bringing up matters of our soul, matters of eternity, and if I may say, 
one of the biggest, most important questions that you could ever think about asking an individual, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? How would you answer that question if I were to ask you it today? If I just walked up to you and said that. Now, I love Jesus and how he responds to this expert who's testing him. Because you see, he does not give him a straightforward response, does he? What does he do instead? He asks a question back to him. So instead of answering it straightforward, he answers with another question. And he turns and he looks to the gentleman and he says in verse 26 that what is, and he asks him, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And listen to this gentleman's response. This gentleman in verse 27 says, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and to what? To love your neighbor as yourself. Say that with me, to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, if you didn't know, Jesus talks about this same principle many times within Scripture. In fact, when Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is, he repeats this in very many ways, to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus says this, though, he's actually not inventing something new in that moment. If anything, he's looking back to the book of Leviticus when this is first brought up. Now, however, though, when the man hears this and when Jesus hears this, Jesus tells him specifically in verse 28 that he's done what? He's answered it what? Correctly. And then Jesus tells him to go and do this, to go and live this out. But what happens next is very important. And I think what happens next should very much convict each and every single one of us. Because regardless of this happening 2,000 years ago, I think very uh, many of us still do these kinds of things today, even as a pastor I do this today. And it says that in verse 29, that the expert, that he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? I ask that same question to you now. Who is your neighbor. You see, make no mistake, God's word, and even through the mouth of Jesus, desires for each and every single one of you to love God and love who else? Your neighbor. So if this is coming from the mouth of God, if this continues to be the rhythm in which God is trying to encourage us to live, that we are to love him and love our neighbor, then wouldn't it be important to know who our neighbor is? 
I think for some of us, if we were to ask the question, what is, who is our neighbor? Our, we might say our neighbor is whoever lives next door. Some of you might say whoever you live close to, maybe a roommate or, or someone that shares a, a building with you. Maybe some of you would say your neighbor is whoever is in your own town or whoever goes to your church or whoever participates in whatever clubs that you are a part of or maybe even your workplace. And in some ways, all of those are good answers, but like the expert that comes to Jesus, and maybe I should put expert in quotation marks, that comes to Jesus, we have a tendency to do what? To try to justify ourselves, meaning that we try to take God's law, his commission, his desire for us to love him and love our neighbors, and we try to reframe it in a way that we are comfortable with, right? Where we create exclusions for ourselves in order to avoid the full meaning of what Scripture calls us to. We all do this. We all try to, in our own ways, cheat the test and figure out what is just enough to qualify while not fully going in. It's kind of like when a kid comes up to a pool and stays in the shallow end and says, yep, I'm in the pool. Are they really in the pool? Yes, they are, but they're only three inches deep, and God's calling you to jump in. So here's what I believe Jesus is trying to call this man to. Because you see, when this man replies and says, who is my neighbor? Again, Jesus, in his wonderful mind and thinking, offers him a story to hopefully illustrate his meaning versus just giving him a plain answer. Because the thing is, is anytime you give somebody a plain answer, they're going to find a way to just justify it. So Jesus offers this powerful story that I'd like to read to you that begins with verse 30. It says this, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. Good news, right? And when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. So what's happening? A man gets stripped, beaten, and left for dead. He sees a priest, and he's probably really thankful in that moment. And then the priest goes, oh, and then just goes the other way. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took what? Pity on him. I want to zoom in really quickly to this word pity. In the Greek, this word pity typically means to feel sympathy for, to be moved with compassion, 
It's the same word that's used to describe many times where Christ was moved with what? With compassion to help those who were sick and hurting. And even it it, it illustrates this much when Jesus sees the demon-possessed man who pleads with Jesus to have pity on him. So this Samaritan man is moved with compassion. He's moved with a sense of sorrow over this individual who was robbed, stripped, beaten, and left for dead. And scripture goes on to say in verse 34 that he went to him and bandaged his wounds and poured oil and wine on him. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. It says, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Wow. Do we have this same level of compassion? That when we see broken and hurting people who are either physically, emotionally, spiritually stripped, beat, robbed, and left for dead, that we too move with this level of compassion and service? I think the answer is, is oftentimes not. But yet I think we, in some ways, hurt for situations like this. Because even though we know we have at times failed to be that kind of person to someone else, we also know that we've been that person at different stages of our lives. Maybe you've never experienced being physically beaten, but you've been beaten emotionally. You've been beaten spiritually. You've been beaten in a way where life likes to kick you when you are down and you desperately desire for someone to have compassion on your life, to recognize the pain that you are going through and rescue you in the midst of that situation. But you see, Jesus is trying to say so much more than what our modern eyes can even witness when we look at at, at these verses. Because you see, this story is famously called the Good Samaritan. In fact, the word Samaritan has such positive perspectives because of this story that even 2,000 years later, we have hospitals called Samaritan hospitals. We have laws, right, where if you try to render aid to uh, certain people that you won't be prosecuted for that kind of aid, and those are called what? Samaritan laws. 
Jesus totally took this word, Samaritan, and changed it forever for the course of history that we look at the word Samaritan with hope now. Where when we say someone was a Samaritan, they did what? They showed compassion to an individual. However, if you were to turn back time and live in their day and age, to say that a Samaritan was good, to call somebody a good Samaritan was a total oxymoron. There was no such thing in their day and age as a good Samaritan. Because you see, every single Jewish person within the culture believed that the whole region of Samaria was a wicked and terrible place. It would be very similar today to, for us to think about certain people groups, maybe certain people groups in the Middle East, and think of them as good. It would be the same challenge that our culture sometimes has today with thinking that foreigners are good people. Well, Jesus is challenging these people and decides to do what? He decides to make the people that would be the heroes, the villains, and the villain, the hero. You see, the Jewish people hated Samaritans so much that both people groups practiced open hostility towards each other. Now, I don't want to get the Samar- I don't want to put the Samaritans off the hook because they had their own things that in some ways perpetuated hatred towards both people groups. In fact, in the region of Samaria, which I'm not sure if I have a, a picture of that on the map for you, this is the region of Samaria that I, I have circled right there. As you can see, it's more towards the uh, it's it's more towards the northern part of of the Israelite kingdom, and in that area, the reason why the Samaritans became as controversial as they are is because what happened was that northern kingdom. These were all Jews and Hebrews. But during the 8th century, the Assyrian nation conquered the region of, of, of the northern kingdom of Israel. And specifically in Samaria, the Samaritans there started to intermarry with those people and their cultures got blended. And so did their religious beliefs. So even though they were Jewish people, within a few generations, their whole entire Jewish doctrines and beliefs started to look different than what true Judaism taught. And because of that, the hatred grew between the north and the southern kingdoms of Israel. So much so that when people from the southern kingdom of Judea would try to travel up to the region of Galilee, where Jesus was from, they would take the longer passage going more towards, pardon me, the east in order to avoid Samaria. Because they hated Samaritans so much that they would literally prolong their journey by days just to not even step foot within their country. Samaritans got this reputation by harboring fugitives from Israel, by allowing different countries that were at war with the southern nation of Israel, 
to, 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 to harbor them. So it got so bad that the Jewish people at some point would travel to their own temples and praise God for not making them Samaritans. That they would rather eat pork than be with a Samaritan. The hatred between these two groups was strong. Yet Jesus does what? He makes the Samaritan people the hero of the story. I like this quote from G.K. Chesterton because I believe in some ways it, it really sums up what I think Jesus at times challenges us with, with some humor. And G.K. Chesterton says this, The Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because they're generally the same person or the same people. I know that that can be true at times, right? (laughs) Isn't it interesting? You see, Jesus wanted to change people's perspectives. He wanted to challenge the way that culture thought. Jesus was not concerned with preserving cultural temperaments. He knew that every person, including us, suffers from issues of the heart. That each of us needs to grow in our willingness to be compassionate. You see, he was concerned with breaking down racial tensions and helping others see that we are all humans and we are all created in the image of God. Church, I need to be honest with you. I do not always excel at being a compassionate person. Now, I don't think that is as controversial as it should sound, because the truth is, is I don't always go to the same lengths that Jesus calls me to. And chances are, and I'm not trying to make myself sound better than I am, but chances are that if I deal with it, we all deal with it, right? We all deal with issues of being compassionate to others. And so often it's so easy for us to get upset at other people and fail to live up to Christ's call for us to love others. But this brings me to my first point of three that I'll be making today. And I promise I'll speed up a little bit. True compassion brings about action. True compassion brings about action. You see, so often our culture is obsessed with this term of awareness, right? You've probably heard this before, that people need to become aware of certain things. So they advocate for certain people to understand and see certain things certain ways, which isn't necessarily bad. But if you really are a compassionate person, you're more than just aware, right? I mean, think about it. The priest and the Levites were very aware of a person who was just broken, beaten, stripped, naked. But did they do anything about it? No. So we need to be more than just aware. We need to be people of action. Amen? 
And true compassion leads to action. So church, challenge yourself with this. That don't just be aware of the problems of the world. Don't just be aware of the problems within your own household or your families, extended families, friends, co-workers, strangers that you meet. Be a compassionate person that actually lives out compassion through the actions of your life. Amen? Because otherwise, what difference does it really make if you hold on to that awareness and do nothing to make a difference? And that's what Jesus is trying to highlight in this situation, that the people that should have known better, the Levites and the priests, which functionally Levites were priests, that these two people should have done better but they didn't. If you didn't know, and I'll show you on the screen here, the path from Jerusalem to Jericho was a 17-mile journey that I have highlighted on the screen for you there. And it was notorious for having robbers. And although Jericho is north of Jerusalem, by the time a traveler would make it from Jerusalem to Jericho, they would have descended around 2,500 feet in elevation as Jerusalem sat higher than Jericho. The next picture that I want to show you here is what that road would have looked like, that real road. And what this region is called right here is called the Wadi Kelt. And interestingly enough, this is most likely the same road that David took when he was trying to run away from his son Absalom, who was trying to kill him and take over the kingdom. And it was here that the priest and the Levite would have understood what being a neighbor meant, but yet failed to respond unlike the Samaritan. Christ continually pushes his audience to see issues with how the law was being treated. Because you see, so often we take laws and instead of allowing God's word to grow our compassion, we almost use God's word as a weapon to withhold compassion. Have you ever seen that happen? Where instead of using God's word as an instrument of being able to bring about freedom and peace and love in people's lives, we use God's word to condemn. We need to be careful of this church. And I think above all, this story illustrates through the eyes of this Samaritan person that we need to be willing to get dirty. This is my second point. Compassion requires a willingness to get dirty. A willingness to get dirty. You know, a few years ago, a congregant of mine, a lovely lady who had no children of her own and she was unmarried, called me up in tears because she was struggling with one of her students, or, or her nephew, that is, who was a student in my youth ministry. Her, this whole family was in an upside-down situation. The mother was addicted to drugs. 
new men came into the home on a daily, if not weekly basis, and the boy really never knew what it was like to be a man or let alone have a father. And because of this dysfunction in the home, this led to dysfunction in the young man's life, which then, of course, created problems within school. And so many people within the school system or outsiders would just look at this young boy and was just was aware of the problem but had no compassion to make a difference and instead just offered nothing but condemnation, which is all this boy probably understood. However, this aunt of hers would oftentimes bridge the gap between some form of stability in this family's life. And she was calling me on this night because she was struggling so deeply with understanding what to do. Because so often her involvement meant that she would have to witness firsthand screaming matches. She'd have to witness firsthand all the difficulties that you can imagine that would surround a situation like this. And it never felt clean or easy to try to help. You know, so often we watch, especially Christian films, which is oftentimes my criticism with some of them, and they just make it seem like a Hallmark movie, right? Where somebody nice comes in and then everybody eventually gets along and then it's happily ever after. And saying that perfect phrase just flips the switch and everybody's, you know, gets along merrily. And life is really not a picture of that. That's not real life. That's a story and a, a poor fiction at that. And I remember telling this woman over the phone that life is messy and ministry is messy. And there's no way that you can do ministry without getting a little messy. Now, I don't mean sinning. But what I do mean is, is that if we are called to be people of this world, but not of this world, that life is going to get messy at different times. Think about the Samaritan. If this man was on the floor, broken, beat, bedraggled, and naked, chances are he was bleeding, he was dirty, he was messy. There is no way in my mind that the Samaritan could go down and do all of the things that he did, pour wine on him, anoint him with oil, bandage him up, put him on his donkey without a little bit of what was on him going on the Samaritan, right? Let that, think, let that sink in for a second. If your life looks ultra clean, chances are you might need to get a little messier. Chances are God might be wanting you to know what it feels like to enter into messy places. Because if you think about it, that's exactly what Jesus did in coming into this earth. He put aside his heavenly rights and entered into a dark world to do what? To get very messy. And I don't think there's a big, better picture of the cross than what it looks like to get messy. Church, it's okay to get messy. If anything, we need to have a willingness and a desire to get a little bit more messy because it is only through doing that that we can truly make a difference in somebody else's life, amen?
I know of a person who was willing to get messy. This man was a pastor of mine who lived in an inner city. In fact, he didn't always live in an inner city, but he felt a call to move to an inner city. This area that I'm talking about isn't far from where I grew up in. Now, I know not all of you know of my background, but I grew up in South Florida. And the zip code that I grew around is, uh, grew up around is one of the wealthiest zip codes, not just in Florida, but in the country. But ironically enough, right next to this ultra, mega, rich zip code, you had one of the poorest, just dilapidated cities in our whole entire state. In fact, some of the crime that was being committed there was so bad that it competed with one of the worst cities in the country. A common problem within this area was 80% of the kids grew up without fathers in their home in that area, among many other things. This gentleman that I'm talking about who became a pastor moved his wife and his two kids to this city. He said when he first got there, he knew that he was responding to a call but reality sunk in when he started to patch up bullet holes on the wall of his home, his exterior. And the sudden realization of, God, what did I move my family to sunk in? But you see, this man was willing to get messy. And because of that, this organization and this church that was planted here is making an incredible difference in this community. They're giving fathers to kids who don't have fathers. I mean male uh, mentors and role models. They're helping abused boys and girls, kids that don't have enough food. So many issues that are going on as the norm. They're addressing that within that area through the love of Jesus Christ. Church, we need to get messy because ultimately, and this is my third point today, Compassion is at the forefront of God's heart. I'll say that once more. Compassion is at the forefront of God's heart. Do you believe that is true? I 100% believe that compassion is at the forefront of God's heart because otherwise, why would Jesus come into this world? He came into this world so that he could live that out for us, so that he can model what it means to be compassionate. After Jesus tells this story to the Samaritan, he finishes this story by saying this, which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber. The expert rightly replies, although you could tell he doesn't want to fully admit the name of the individual, so he withholds from saying Samaritan, and he says what? In verse 36 and 37, the one who had mercy on him. The word mercy here in Greek is elios, and it could mean also the one who had compassion on him. 
I'd like to offer you a new definition today for what does it mean to be a neighbor. And I think in simple, a neighbor is anyone who crosses our path. A neighbor is anybody who crosses our path. I think God wants us to show compassion to all people regardless of their walks of life. Now you might be asking yourself, Pastor, this has been a convicting message. I appreciate all the time you've taken to talk about compassion, but what in the world does that have to do with our discipleship value of service? Well, the Good Samaritan is a very powerful reminder of how compassion leads to action, and action is a form of service. Church, we need to serve our world. This is why it is one of our values as Peace Mennonite Community Church, that we desire to serve our world. And we made that language very strategic because our world consists of our entire world, but it also consists of your world, however big or small that influence might be. And I believe that our church is called to serve. And in fact, if you are not serving, then you are missing out on what God has for you. That in fact, your faith in some ways is not growing as much as it could be if you are not serving. Now, serving looks very different. Serving, yes, could be the many opportunities that we have in this church, like serving our nursery kids or our school-aged kids, being a friendly face that greets people at the doors, or helping with our building, which I know Phil is praying that other men or women that are just willing to even swing a hammer every now and then would help out with some of the repairs and things that it takes to keep this church going. It could mean helping out and being a part of our speaking team, like what Ginger did today in reading the scripture. It could mean joining the worship team and singing along Jessica and Barb, who help lead us most Sundays. Helping out as an usher, helping out with fellowship events, helping with our tech and getting our podcast up and making sure our sound and video are working well. It could mean helping by opening up a small group of your own in your home or in, in, in at least just hosting one. It could mean so many different things. And it could mean something that I haven't even listed, something that we're not even doing that we maybe need to be doing. But regardless of whatever that is, God wants you to serve because service is an expression of the compassion that God builds in our hearts. So whether you are young or you are old, if you are to be a person of compassion, if you are to model Jesus' attitude of leading through service, then God wants you to serve. And if you aren't serving, I want to lovingly convict you to start serving, because I believe that in doing that, your faith will be deepened and you will thrive all the more in your discipleship journey. Amen? 
So what do I want you to do this week? This week, I want you to simply be reminded that serving, that compassion is at the forefront of God's heart. And by doing that and living that out, you get to be Jesus to somebody else. You get to meet the messy needs in somebody else's life.